This is a special presentation of Sam's interview on Best Camp of My Life with Fernanda Praches. If you like thoughtful and conscientious reporting on mixed martial arts, follow Fernanda on Twitter and find Best Camp of My Life wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to this week's episode of Best Camp of My Life, a podcast about MMA. Kind of, but not really, but kind of. I'm your host, Fernanda Prates, unless this is in connection to that one thing that happened that one time in that one world summit in Brussels. In which case, I am not Fernanda Prates, I don't know a Fernanda Prates, and I honestly don't know what would possess a young woman to run through some of the world's most influential leaders with the words, eat the rich, except for Keanu Reeves, written across her naked, and dare I say, exceptionally toned and curvaceous body. Truly an act of terror. In case this isn't in connection to that, I am indeed Fernanda Prates, alleged owner of a toned and curvaceous body, possible founder and moderator of the private but well-connected Keanu Reeves King Facebook group, and confirmed host of this humble audio form endeavor. Diplomatic gossip and that one little misunderstanding with the CIA aside, I'm merely a human person who thinks things and writes things and gets to either speak these things into a mic or, on the good days, discuss them with fellow human people who are not just the voices in my head. And today, my friends, is one of the good days. That is right, after yet another week of subjecting you exclusively to the twisted contents of my brain, I am once again joined by a special guest. Today's victim is Sam, martial artist, writer, and host of the Southpaw Podcast, a show that features interviews, analysis, and thoughts from a liberation martial artist. I don't know if you, my perspicacious listener, have noticed this, but leftist voices aren't exactly plentiful in this particular space. So I was interested in hearing a bit of Sam's unique perspective on this beautifully deranged sport that fills us with awe, heartbreak, and blinding rage, often all at the same time. Here's our chat. Enjoy it. Or don't, just please remember that I may or may not have receipts of compromising conversations with several powerful world leaders, and I am not afraid to use them. I will admit I did mildly resent today's guest for taking the coolest name for an MMA podcast and preventing me from having it. However, in my infinite kindness, I decided to let that slide and instead make peace with the enemy and have him as a guest. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Hi, honored to be here. I do resent you for taking the best <laughs> podcast name, though. You know, I mean, <laughs> it doesn't stop anybody else because uh, there's other been other podcasts who have taken that name since and other outlets that are related to sports. So <laughs> they do it anyway. But are they like, because that's the thing, right? It's the double meaning, Southpaw, left-leaning politics. Like, I wonder if they understand how beautiful it truly is. Like that's oh, my whole thing. Yeah, people who are on the left <laughs> love love wordplay. So yeah, that's true. I yeah. can uh, attest to that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I will say that my name is not terrible, but I still think 
South mm-hmm. Florida schools. Um, I guess we'll start with the basics, kind of uh, let our audience find out a little more about you and me too. Um, I was listening to a podcast, one of your podcast episodes that you did with Dan Tom, and you kind of spoke about doing martial arts basically your whole life. Have you, You've been involved since you were six. I kind of wanted to hear more about that. Like, how did your, I know it's kind of, it's probably a long story, <laughs> but <laughs> just kind of uh, how did your involvement with, with martial arts begin? Um, that's kind of, uh, not, not necessarily a long story, but more mm-hmm. of a, a story that needs to be unpacked because it's okay. not just my story, but it's yeah. also about reframing how think of, how people think about martial arts and even mm-hmm. combat sports. So what I mean by that is people think about martial arts as like this killing art or it's like who can be like the best fighter or best... <laughs> Let's be real. It's about best killer. Oftentimes, like when you hear people talking about what's real or what's fake, they're mm-hmm. talking about moves. The, what, the real moves are the moves that could kill somebody, right? Yeah. <laughs> so true. like in a weird way, a <laughs> homicidal killer is like the best martial artist. Like they don't say that outright, but that's kind of implied in that whoever has the most killing power is the most real martial artist, right? But uh, here in the US, especially if you are a person of color, uh, mm-hmm. from the East, like I am. So, uh, mm-hmm. Korean American. Yeah. When parents enroll their kids into martial arts. So for me, six, it's as cultural exchange, whether yeah. they know it or not, it's unconsciously that it's, we're in a new place. Um, the schools don't speak Korean. Um, they feel like maybe, uh, I'm going to lose my culture completely. So, mm-hmm. and, and especially if there's no language school available where you can learn Korean, then, um, Korean martial arts becomes uh, not necessarily a replacement, but it it, it serves in lieu of yeah. a cultural school or a language school. So that's what it was about. It wasn't necessarily about, I think like suburban parents put their kids like, oh my God, you know, what if somebody bullies my kid? I need to put my kid into martial mm-hmm. arts, never thinking maybe their kid could be the bully. But for yep. a lot of us, <laughs> our journey into martial arts, a lot of us who are BIPOC, it was mm-hmm. more of uh learning about our culture and uh, and cultural inheritance. So mm-hmm. the, for me, when I started, it was in Taekwondo. My, my teacher was Korean. He barely spoke English. Mm-hmm. So it was also this inheriting of culture because it, unspoken, he knew part of his job was also teaching about uh, Korean culture, Korean mm-hmm. history, things like that. So that's where my journey started. And so I think um, my, my framework of martial arts has always been different because I'm sure other people who took it with me at the same time, maybe they have different views about it. But for whatever reason, even as a six-year-old, I was acutely aware of what this was, like what was happening Mm -hmm. here. I was here to learn Korean, really. And then all the other stuff was like a bonus, right? But uh, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the the problem-solving aspect of it. People think maybe Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is the only thing that thinks about problem-solving, but all the martial arts are about problem-solving. Even if it's yeah. within fighting within its own system, then, mm-hmm. then both of us are playing the same game. Then there's a lot of like uh, intellectual, intellectual pursuit that goes into that. So mm-hmm. uh, I got really pulled into that. And uh, from then on, I just started doing a lot of different martial arts over the years and uh, writing about martial arts mm-hmm. um, and even traveling the world to train different martial arts and train with different people. So uh, that's how I ended up here talking to you. Yeah, that's I actually wanted to get to that, of course. I was actually listening to the 
uh, Have Gee Will Travel series, mm-hmm. uh, which, by the way, everybody who's listening the, to this should listen to. It's fascinating and uh, super well written. I was... Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts, so it takes a little bit to sort of capture my attention. And I was just uh, immersed in it. And I wanted to ask you about that because, uh, you know, so basically you quit your job and decided to travel and learn martial arts Mm -hmm. like in 2008. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that. From what I understood from this series, like you had this stable sort of regular uh, well-paying kind of office job and it made you miserable and then you decided to quit. So that was that how it happened? Yeah. And it was like, uh, I guess it was gradual. It was building up, but the decision mm-hmm. came overnight, like not even overnight, within minutes. Like I was just sitting there. I'm like, I just need, I need to quit. Mm-hmm. And then I drafted a letter and then the next day I, I I gave my notice. It's not like I left the the immediate day, but I made a decision very quickly. Um, And the job that I had that time period, 2008 is is important in that it was before, or I guess like culminating into the financial crisis here in the US, which spread across Mm -hmm. the globe. And I was working in the financial services. So Mm -hmm. I think unconsciously I was aware that something bad was happening. And I was part of that. I was, I was like, Mm-hmm. not helping people. I was actually mm-hmm. like part of something that was gonna, that was not only hurting people now, but was going to hurt people even more so. I didn't know it then until the crash happened. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, oh yeah, that's what that that feeling was about. That That's what that guilt was about. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't feel good about myself and I, I quit my job. Uh, there wasn't much planning to it. I think I purposely didn't want to plan too much because I didn't want to overthink it. I didn't want to spook myself out. I didn't mm-hmm. want I didn't want it to have any goals or preparation because then uh, I wouldn't be able to see what I was going to see. I, I wasn't mm-hmm. going to be able to be just uh, open. So I just put stuff in my car and then uh, I went to get a tune-up and then grabbed lunch and then I left. And then when I left, I didn't know where I was going to go. So I just drove wherever and then from there trained stayed there and then just from there hopped around for like six months and then i came back home and uh while i was doing this journey i was blogging about it Mm -hmm. you know i was blogging about it i was like writing uh reviews about all the places i stopped at and and so some people still remember me for that and uh yeah so even a lot of the listeners i have now They've been with me, I guess, over 10 years. A lot of them were part of that journey. Because that's crazy, right? Like I, that into the wild kind of thing is exactly what I think a lot of us sort of fantasize about doing. Mm -hmm. So when we see somebody actually doing it, it's just, it's so enthralling. And I can imagine following it in real life, like in real time, Mm -hmm. because I would have probably been just as fascinated and asking you all the questions because I mean, I can speak for myself. I've never had the courage to do it, but I'm sure you heard it a lot from people at the time, right? Oh, I wish I had the guts to do what you just did. Yeah. uh, A lot of the questions were, why am I doing this? And this Mm -hmm. is before, like there's been other martial artists, Brazilian jiu-jitsu people who did this Mm -hmm. later, but especially when I did it, like people didn't understand what I was doing. I didn't understand what I was doing. And it's not just about like courage. Mm -hmm. I guess there's some of that involved, but there's also a, a privilege involved in that yeah. I had the ability to do it at all, right? That's true. 
So it's not even, it wasn't a how-to guide, like this is what you, or even like prescriptive telling people this is what you should do. It was always framed when I was telling my stories, this is just what I did, but I'm not Mm -hmm. telling you to do this. And I'm not telling you you're a worse person if you don't do this. And you, at the time you were going to different gyms, like uh, trying out different, uh, I guess, training styles, cultures, like how is that? Was it a tour like through martial arts as well? Yeah, I did different martial arts, but mostly Brazilian jiu-jitsu, okay. MMA. Mm-hmm. Um, some places I just went and worked out. They, you know, maybe it might mm-hmm. might have been a CrossFit or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so I saw a lot of different gym cultures. And so a lot of my observations that I even tweet about now, mm-hmm. I saw it back then. So I think the reason why I can so acutely analyze a lot of the things that are happening now is because mm-hmm. I saw the underpinnings of it back then. And I saw a lot of the symptoms of it back then. And I think also because I've been training for so long and stuck with it. Cause a lot of people who started when I did, they don't train anymore. So mm-hmm. you don't hear their institutional knowledge anymore. You know, yeah. where, whereas yeah. when I, when I started like in the nineties and whatever, like uh, people knew back then that the Gracie's were not liked in Brazil. Whereas those people, I guess, stopped training in the U.S. They, they got the blue belt, whatever, or they, mm-hmm. life moved on. And then somehow that got erased. And then all of a sudden, like, Hickson, beca- Hickson becomes God and the Gracie's yep. become, like, uh, mm-hmm. rehabilitated. Yeah. That's crazy because, honestly, like, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I still think that they are a little bit uh, godified in Brazil. But the pr- more problematic aspects of their their... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, culture, I'm going to call it a culture because it's, it's very, the graces are, have a very specific set of, um, rules and just the way, the framework of that, the family. But like, uh, the more I saw a lot of the more problematic aspects of that, like sort of never making it to the U S, um, personally, it got a little to me more uh, apparent recently with the Bolsonaro election in Brazil, because a lot of the family like immediately sided and very publicly uh, supported Bolsonaro. And I was like, yeah, that's not really surprising. guys. <laughs> I don't know what you're, what you're disappointed about over there. I was not, I'm not necessarily surprised that that happened. Yeah. I mean, you think about when I was training back 90s, early 2000s, mm-hmm. a lot of the American black belts or even like lower belts, you didn't have a lot of black belts. So this whole like you need to be three three stripes or third degree to give somebody a black belt that could not exist back then because there was no mm-hmm. there were no black belts. So a lot of the people training, how they were learning was through tapes and also constantly flying and training in Brazil. Mm-hmm. So then the people back then, they got the, the information firsthand. Then what happened yeah. is, as American black belts uh, started popping up, they mythologized and they projected whatever mm-hmm. they wanted onto the art and they just made up whatever. And then mm-hmm. we had this new mythical story as the old old the old guard left, right? They stopped mm-hmm. training for whatever reason because Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a really hard sport to uh, yeah. train for a long time. Yep. And, and, and how was it for you popping up at new gyms? Like I would imi- imagine that you had to sort of have a code for yourself, maybe. How did you do to sort of protect yourself, um, to adapt? And at the same time, I imagine you can't get too comfortable because you're like hopping from place to place. How was that that aspect of it, of just like constantly having to adjust to new realities of new gyms, which we know sometimes they're very settled in their habits and they might not be as welcoming uh, to newcomers. So how's that part of it for you? 
Um, so I quickly had to like develop some rules to mm. make sure, you know, <laughs> I, I, I trained and I left in one piece. And yeah. I don't know if it's still the way, I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, a lot of it is like, you know, the, the most benefit you're going to gain isn't even from the roles, it's from the class because mm. you're going to get the instructions there. That's where you're going to learn this school system, yeah. their thesis in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or, or Muay Thai or whatever the, mar the martial art is. And then when there, when it's time for sparring, you have to just, um, it's almost like pro wrestling. The, the, mm. And this is different from everybody else, but that was the system I adopted. Meaning even if I, you could feel where somebody's level is from rolling with them. And yeah. even if I knew I could beat them or I was better than them, I just let everybody beat me up. And because early on, I just rolled just hard. Yeah. But the thing is, is once you do that, some schools, they, they, they take that as a challenge mm -hmm. and then they're going to put everybody on you. And then some mm -hmm. people will try to hurt you. So I was, I just let everybody tap me and beat me up. And because, <laughs> well, what's the point? Like, I'm not going to yeah. be there long enough to like stake out some territory or like prove where yeah. I am in the pecking order. I just wanted, I, I just went there to learn that old, I'm not there long enough to do anything other than to learn. Right. Mm -hmm. So I took the class, I got some roles, got my cardio up. And, uh, and then let everybody beat me up. And that was basically my rule. Yeah. Like why, why protect your ego at that moment when it could be in exchange for like a knee, maybe not worth it. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like, they're going to stay there. So if I mm -hmm. beat them up, they have to live with that and they have to stay at that gym. Whereas yeah. I can't even take that victory with me anywhere. Right. Yeah. So for them, they have more to lose than I do. So I just, and people say like, there's no ego on the mats. Like you're just rolling, who cares? And it's like, people care. <laughs> At the end of the day, they do care. And, but yeah. what would the, what were the other sort of more, I would imagine that a trip like this, like you said, kind of like not having any plans and you, uh, I, I agree with you that there is some level of sort of privilege of being able even to do this, but, um, you know, you kind of, I would imagine, are are forced to confront uh, certain parts of yourself. And I, I don't know, what was the, what were the positive takeaways from that trip? Whether from, you know, what you got on the gyms and with the people you trained with or just the people you came across with, across, like what were the sort of some of the positive lessons that you took from this journey? Yeah. Okay. Uh, in the short term, it's about the people I met and, and mm -hmm. it still is like, I've made a lot of great friends from that time and, uh, I still talk to them. Mm -hmm. And I, initially that was what my focus on, but in the long run, what was most valuable and stayed with me is all the time I spent alone, just thinking mm -hmm. about the world, I, driving through America. I realized how big America is, how much empty space there is, how like from town to town, they have no idea what the other town is doing. They have mm -hmm. no idea that there's people in other towns living the same lives as they do. It's so disconnected, right? And I yeah. think part of that is just having such a big uh, piece of land that everybody's mm -hmm. on. And then you start thinking about other things, like how do people get here? It's, you know, it's like this, this mm -hmm. used to belong to somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, and also like time to reflect on my own thoughts you know, yeah. about uh, like my, I, my radio didn't even work because a lot of the places I drove through back then was so hot. Eventually my radio overheated and it just broke. So I was, it was just me and my thoughts. And so I thought yeah. about a lot of things and just self-reflected, mm -hmm. um, thought about who I was, thought about the mistakes I've made and, mm -hmm. um, 
then for me, at least anyway, that time it was about how do I become a better person? Cause I want to be a better yeah. person. Cause I don't want to keep, um, having, having done harm to people or having things or having to look back and, and wish I did things differently. How could be mm-hmm. a, how could I be a more positive force in the world? So I thought a lot about that. I thought a lot about philosophy. I read a lot of philosophy mm-hmm. during that time. And, um, I think there is just something to be something to just being quiet and sitting with yourself. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, you know, I, I, it really did develop like my political thinking about, mm-hmm. it, it was like the, the impetus for a lot of my political thinking about how politics merges with martial arts and, and my place in the world. That's what I was going to ask. Where did that sort of come from? Cause obviously when we're talking about MMA uh, in particular, you could say combat sports more broadly, but I can speak to MMA because it's the environment that I've been in for the past 12 years of my life. But you, the impression that you get <laughs> is that it's not a very left-leaning uh, space. Um, and I want to I wanna get a little bit more uh, in that with you uh, later, but, you know, that we don't really see a lot of the type of politics um, that you that you talk about that mm-hmm. I personally identify with. And I kind of wanted to see, to ask where did that come from with you? I mean, cause you're just talking about having this financial job and sort of wondering, you know, if you were actually doing harm or contributing uh, to the state of the world in a way by doing what you did. And I, I like you said, I, I would imagine this trip helped broaden it, but uh, I, yeah, just wanted to get a, be- a better sense of where did it begin? Like, where do your, your, your politics sort of come from? I would say, I mean, it started since before I was even born. I think mm-hmm. just my parents were, are, well, they're passed away, but we're very old. My, my okay. father was born in the 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my mom was born in the 40s. So they had a lot of memory of exactly the way things happen. So I would say I'm, I'm raised like the grandparents a lot of a lot of my peers. Okay. So prior to a, a lot of uh, the way history got revised uh, my parents weren't around for for that to like replace that their own memory they were alive prior to then so they gave me you know information and background of what mm-hmm. they saw so yeah. they were you know especially my father was around prior to the war in korea okay. you know prior to the dmz forming and so a lot of the way i would say is taught here is even different from yeah. the way it's taught in South Korea. So even like the the centrist South Korean teaching of it would be considered far left here. Mm-hmm. So, so a lot way- of things are considered far left in yeah. the current in the current moment. Uh, interestingly enough, so I was so because of my parents, uh, I was yeah. anti-imperialist before I was even born. I mean, Got a it. bomb fell through my mom's house and it didn't mm-hmm. go off, and so. Uh, that's how I'm here because for yeah. whatever reason that thing didn't go off. And here's the thing that a lot of people, even Korean Americans don't know mm-hmm. is only one side was bombing. So whenever you hear a Korean American saying, well, my grandparents f- fled the bombing, even maybe they think maybe the bombings happened because of the DPRK or North Korea, but it didn't, they didn't have any bombers. Only the U S had bombers. So all those bombing stories were from the U S they were all fleeing U S bombings. So that bomb was dropped by the U.S. My parents luckily survived. 
this was still in South Korea. They were dropping bombs in South Korea because it was all fluid where the the border lines were. And mm-hmm. then the the U.S. military, the U.N., they came and seized the house and they used that house um, uh, for whatever to to eat and and as a rest stop, whatever. And there's a lot of the story she didn't want it to say, which implies a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was like that background. So so that's real. That really happened, right? So you, somebody can't make up some new history and try to erase that because my parents lived through it. So I think that informed a lot of my view. Um, and then the trip taught me a lot about, I guess it it added compassion to my view. I had this very like, so like I said, I had a, a, a very left-leaning view, but being around so many people, I realized, and constantly having to say hello and goodbye, the trip taught me compassion because if I empathize with everybody, it would be like painful to say goodbye, painful to hear, you know, uh, everybody's stories. If, you know, not every, because I was a stranger, a lot of people opened up to me, especially because I was blogging. A lot of people almost wanted mm-hmm. to be interviewed by me. So especially like from women in jujitsu, I heard yeah. a lot of painful stories. And mm-hmm. so if I, I learned quickly also that if I empathize with each person, then, uh, you know, either I will lose my empathy altogether. I, I, sometimes it doesn't work the way people think. It doesn't always make you a better person. Sometimes like empathy can make you a very, um, I would say bad person because a lot of people like, you know, uh, do bad things because they empath- like, uh, you know, uh, there's been studies that say like white nationalists are overly empathetic to a specific group, their own group. So whatever small slight that they think they take, it, they all mm-hmm. feel like they took that slight. It happened to uh, one of us. It happened to all of us. And then they mm-hmm. lash out in this very violent, uh, negative, harmful way. Right. Whereas with compassion, I realized like I could, I could f- I could understand them. I could hear them. I don't have to talk mm-hmm. over them, but I don't necessarily have to feel into everybody. I could just record it and observe it and be able to move on. And yeah. so that's a very important aspect of my politics is learning compassion on top of everything else. Because, you know, mm-hmm. just because you're left wing doesn't mean you're a nice person. There's a lot of mean people on the left as well. Because yeah, absolutely. being on the left isn't a magic pill. It's not like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, um, I'm part of the left and now I'm cured of all the reactionary like misogynistic or even like racist views I held before because we grow up um, and are brought into a reactionary misogynistic like racist Mm -hmm. white supremacist world Mm -hmm. so there's no such thing as even being on the left it's more of like it's not an identity it's something that you're always aiming towards it's like a goal Mm -hmm. so you have to unlearn a lot of things so a lot of the Mm -hmm. reason why misogyny it's not that the left creates misogyny. It remains on the left because people don't mm-hmm. know that that's something they have to try to unlearn and then also, you know, do self-work and think about how did I, where did I get these ideas? Because a lot of it is just assumptions. Like, you know, there's a lot of uh, heuristics, a lot of this is just the way uh, the world is that, I don't know, mm-hmm. women are inferior or, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, these races are inferior and you just keep hold on to those assumptions while you change some other stuff and it's like no you got to challenge everything and you have to constantly work at it because there's just there's no way to know all the things that that you've been conditioned to believe yeah and that's something you talk about i see you talking about a lot which is the also linked to the very core of martial arts which is the idea that you're constantly 
learning, right? That you can't really settle into this, oh, I'm a good person. Like I have progressive values, therefore it's all good. Like yeah. you're constantly having to unpack this. I talked about this a lot with my guests because, uh, you know, a lot of this podcast really is about talking about my experiences and the, the experiences of my guests. And one thing I talked about a lot was just how much internalized misogyny I had to personally unpack and still do uh, at 31, uh, being what I consider to be a very left uh, leftist person with... I like to think good values that I still find myself having to sort of detangle myself from the systems that I was raised in. Like nobody's born woke, quote unquote. I hate using that word because it's been appropriated in such a terrible way. But yeah, nobody was born entirely deconstructed. Like when it, it really is a continuous process. And if it gets comfortable, it means you're doing something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not like... You have to, there's the other thing, right? We buy into this, uh, I don't know, Christian framework that you always have to judge yourself. And it's like, yeah. people will get annoyed. Like, oh, then you always have to beat yourself up, judge yourself and you're always bad. And it's like, no, you don't have to judge no. yourself. Just be open to learning. Mm -hmm. And it is what it is. Like you had this thing, you know, have no judgment about it. And if, if it's harmful to people, try to remedy that if you can. Yeah. One thing I wanted to talk to you about, and that's something that comes up here a lot as well. I think it's just a difficult thing to say, to unpack. I think a lot of us are just under the general impression that MMA, you know, just by living it and being it, uh, that it is this space just sort of <clears throat> riddled with right wing thinking and just like conspiracy theories and just that kind of just, uh, you know, reactionary mindset. And one thing I personally struggle with is to figure out whether that's MMA is actually worse in that sense uh, than other spaces. Again, by my experiences, I kind of feel like it is. But at the same time, I'm just so deeply entrenched in this bubble that it's hard for me to even get that that sort of bigger perspective. But I, what I wanted to hear from you, if, if why do you think co this comes from? Like, where do you think that... Uh, MMA lends itself to this kind of idea, um, you know, whether it is more prevalent in MMA than in other spaces or not. But like, what do you think makes it such a, a fertile ground for that kind of thing? I think because we're so used to using the acronym, we don't, mm. we stop forgetting what MMA is, right? It's, yeah. It's mixed martial arts. So mm -hmm. you're mixing different martial arts together, but you're also mixing just cultures together. Mm -hmm. So I would say in general, martial arts, because it is so masculine, there's so, mm -hmm. men do, so many men doing it, even in the most traditional arts, even the softest art, soft as in like, you know, the soft styles, it's still a lot mm -hmm. of men. And the, especially if you live in North America, the way it was brought here was either through the military or through neo-colonialism. So meaning like some GI learned something and brought it here and they were the first karate or judo instructors mm -hmm. or somebody went to the East or went somewhere else and learned something and brought it back and started a business, right? Mm -hmm. So it comes in those lenses. I'm talking about the initial arts. So they already yeah. have like this right-wing bent, right? Whether okay. it's imperialist, pro-cop. Pro I mean, a lot of the original schools and you go to any military base or near any, uh, especially in the US, any police station, there's a ton of martial arts schools. You look at where the Gracie mm -hmm. headquarters is and it's like majority of cops live in that area. Mm -hmm. So you have that, that's historic. 
Yeah. And then what is what is MMA? You take all these, you're not just taking these moves, but you're mixing all these cultures together into this mm-hmm. meta culture. So, you, so I guess in a way, uh, MMA becomes unique. I don't want to say necessarily worse because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I would say Brazil, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is pretty bad, but mm-hmm. um, it, it becomes this unique meta culture where mm-hmm. you have the guy from the boxing coach brings, you know, toxic masculinity from boxing. You got the BJJ coach bringing, you know, Bolsonaro fascism, right? You have the the Muay Thai uh, coach who's bringing, bringing QAnon into the mix. And that's the thing people don't know. The BJJ MMA was, was pro-cop and, and traditional conservative, uh, you know, had race, racist tendencies, I would say, built in for a while, but a lot of the Mu- the Muay Thai people were the ones I feel like brought in the QAnon aspect to it. I mean, of course, we had Eddie Bravo and stuff from mm-hmm. from Jiu-Jitsu in there as well. But um, yeah, so I think it's that when you do Muay-, Muay Thai, everybody feels like you have to go to Thailand. You have to go to the East. You have to go to the frontier and absorb like this new age knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that makes these type of spiritual adventurists more receptive to things like QAnon. So then you have MMA just absorbing all of that. So MMA is like the meta chud culture in that it has yeah. all of that built into it. Yeah. So a lot of the fighters, I think they just also parrot whatever they hear from their coaches. Mm-hmm. That's something I keep pointing to. And one thing that you touched on that I thought was very interesting because you mentioned that not necessarily worse, unique. And that's what I've been sort of teaching myself to even think of as because what I'm trying to think, like, because I get asked that a lot. Like, do you think it's worse in MMA? And what I've been trying to, to teach even myself to, to you know, teaching myself in terms of a framework is just, I don't know, but it, that doesn't necessarily matter. It exists. The world is like this and MMA exists in, in this world. And this these are the ways in which these things manifest themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's not necessarily that it's worse or better or whatever. It's just that it's a very unique way. And I think you put it very, very uh, well in the way that you explained that sort of meta aspect of the whole thing. Uh, it's on a, that sense, I'm going to, your your Twitter, hand, your Twitter handle right now, it says Liberation uh, Martial Artist. And I wanted, if you could, to explain to all of us as if we're five, that's kind of our... What, I, what we do in this podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. What do you mean when you say you're a liberation martial artist? So there's a tradition of liberation politics that goes mm-hmm. way back. And okay. uh, I mean, there's if you get into left theory, let's say, there's a lot yeah. of what they call different strains of the left. But for mm-hmm. especially BIPOC, uh, there's mm-hmm. this tradition where especially BIPOC here in the US and then uh, third, mm-hmm. what they call third world uh, people of color They've always had these liberations and and revolutions. So it's like to emancipate themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's to say that uh, like uh, prior to all the lockdowns, I used to go to Black Panther alumni breakfasts. And so okay. I would meet a lot of these old radicals. It wasn't just mm-hmm. Black Panthers. I would meet people from what was back then, the Rainbow mm-hmm. Coalition, which were these other BIPOC organizations headed by um, the Black Panthers. And so that's the way they refer to their politics is liberation politics, meaning okay. it's the liberation of people of color, um, especially the liberation of Black people in the U.S. and mm-hmm. Africa, um, but also people 
in the third world. So people where rich countries become rich because they take the money from the poor countries, right? Hard to so, swallow pills that <laughs> I think a lot of people are still reluctant to accept. Yeah, I mean, developing country means like the money is being, is being pulled from these countries to develop the already rich countries, right? Mm-hmm. So the emphasis is on the liberation of those people. Mm-hmm. In whatever whatever way, it's more of a moral compass than and than a how to guide. Mm-hmm. Um, so in martial arts, then from that same framework, what do I mean? Then we have to uplift and um, focus on the people at the very very bottom. Okay. So we a lot of martial arts is like flattening. Uh, I don't care if you're black, blue, blue or purple. You know, I don't know if you're. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. It's all the same. And it's like we can't, no. It can't be like mm-hmm. that. It has to be the most marginalized people are the ones in who are most vulnerable, like straight up. If we're talking factual history, factual mm-hmm. statistics, and just facts, they are the most vulnerable. Some big 200-pound white guy is not nearly in as much danger existing as um, a small black queer person, right? Mm-hmm. So then from a martial arts perspective, if it is to be bottom up and also applying that type of politics, then we got to put that person at the forefront. Mm-hmm. We have to put our concern on on those people, on the marginalized people. So uh, mm-hmm. using liberation politics, that as a lens into martial arts, um, that's what I'm implying by that name, liberation yeah. martial arts. And speaking of sort of those efforts, I think one clear sort of manifestation of that that desire and those efforts is your your podcast, Southpaw Podcast. So I kind of wanted to hear a little bit more about the history of that. How did the the, the show just, came, um, how did it come to be? So kind of like how I started my trip, which was just impromptu and, and yeah. uh, what is it? Uh, impulsive. That was yeah. the same way the podcast started. It was like texting with a friend. Um, mm-hmm. There, it might have been like a, a MMA fighter we were both interested in. We couldn't find okay. any interviews, but then they appeared on Joe Rogan. So then the question was like, do we watch or listen to Joe Rogan to hear more about this fighter? And then we mm-hmm. realized there's a monopoly. It's like the only way to hear some of these people is you have to go to Joe Rogan. So mm-hmm. Joe, Joe Rogan, I don't know if anybody, anybody believes this anymore, but he, especially back then, tried to make it seem like he was a neutral arbiter, but he's not. He yeah. pulls you in be, uh, mm-hmm. with the MMA and then he makes you stay for his type of reactionary culture, masculinity, worldview politics. So we were like, I was like to my friend, we should have some kind of counterpoint to that where you, yeah. where people who are interested in MMA don't have to go for that type of politics. They could go to us mm-hmm. and they get a different type of politics. And especially back then, it, it, you didn't even really have Ariel Hawani that much where he was doing long form interviews. It, that was just starting. So it was really just Joe Rogan. And now there's like your podcast. There's other podcasts that have popped up. Uh, yeah. where where you could do a deep dive with a fighter and listen to them or with a coach. But mm-hmm. he had a monopoly. So I think um, that was, I mean, not that I think, that was the impetus, like to have a counterpoint to Joe Rogan, have a lefty Joe Rogan. Um, yeah. But from there it evolved. I didn't necessarily want to have a goal in mind. It was just like, let's mm-hmm. start from there. And this it's always becoming, let's see what happens to it. And, and since then it's grown to be more than a podcast. It's like an outlet and a group and, yeah. and a community. What year was that? Man, um, I, I, I want, it's like three or four years ago, I want to say now. Okay. 
but it's only rec- it was it's only recently in the last two years, like really from the George Floyd protests is when Southpaw really exploded. And by the way, for those listening, these concepts that like I'm touching on in very basic terms here, they are discussed in much more in depth and they do amazing interviews with characters that you won't see at all uh, in mainstream sort of MMA things or even with me. And that's the thing that I wanted to ask you about, because uh, when I started my previous podcast, well, actually, which is actually how we first started talking, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. I think that was the yeah. My idea was for it to be sort of a more progressive space and what I felt like, you know, because I felt like at that point, the podcast space was already crowded. Mm-hmm. We already had several, but a lot of it was based on just interviews, uh, breakdowns, analysis, technical things that I wasn't interested in doing and wasn't good at. Still, I'm not. <laughs> I always say this. It's not my thing. Uh, you had Dan Tom in your podcast. He's an amazing analyst. That's his thing. I'm not uh, great at that. But it was basically my attempt of trying to um, discuss things that I felt like people were maybe either too reticent to discuss or just not interested at all uh because mm-hmm. why would they be right the radical notion that women should be treated like people and that billionaires maybe don't have our best interests at heart you know um and still i was very sort of yeah i was a little weary i i, I was reticent to start it because i always i kept feeling like it wasn't going to be welcome that you know the internet was going to revolt against me that i was going to become like persona non grata on Twitter. (laughs) I had all these fears about uh, Mm -hmm. saying things that people maybe weren't interested in in hearing. And you, and and this is less, a lot less, I'm going to say quote unquote radical than uh, the ideas that you discuss. Um, Were you at any point sort of just like, did you think twice about putting that out into the the world? Were you worried about how it was going to be received at all? So I would say that's a, a good problem. I wasn't worried about that at all because that would mean people are listening, right? So, yeah. so the <laughs> early, so the early episodes, we joked around that there will be only five people interested in a podcast like this. So uh-huh. we're we're just making it for them. And at the yeah. beginning, it was very, very few people who were listening. So uh, that never because of the way we framed ourselves and there was never going to be a bait and switch where like we present the, ourselves as one way and then, mm-hmm. you know, people aren't going to leave reviews. Like I thought it was going to be a regular MMA podcast and then they were talking about <laughs> other stuff. Uh, I, I always presented it as this is what it is. So then mm-hmm. I never really worried about it, worried about that. And we still don't have that problem because even with people who are reactionary, mm-hmm they're not going to like look for my podcast just to shit on it. They see yeah. what it's about and they're like, I'm not interested. They get yeah. upset when you fe- they feel like you did a bait and switch where they thought it was going to be like mm-hmm. a, a regular uh, MMA podcast, regular meaning right leaning anyway, right? So yeah. no, knowing that ahead of time, um, yeah. I, I presented that uh, right away that this was the point of the podcast. And so in that way, I kind of assumed nobody would have a problem with it and we haven't really had any issues with that and i haven't had any yeah. issues with that and and then there's the other way right like i was 
in my case, just pleasantly surprised uh, with the reception because I think there were a lot of people who just really came up to me and said, wow, like I, I kind of wanted this. I wanted to hear this uh, a lot more than I expected. I was like, I mean, the podcast, the first one got canceled. So obviously it wasn't that successful. But like, I was kind of <laughs> like you in that. Uh, I'm lucky if like five people listened to me and I ended up uh, being positively surprised with sort of the messages or yeah, you know, that people were actually, or the conversations that people were, were interested in having. You mentioned that, you know, Southpaw grew and it became something else. It became a community. Were you surprised at how sort of, uh, of how, how much it grew? Oh yeah. I'm surprised every day. I'm surprised that the people I've met through it and mm -hmm. people I've become like really, really close friends with, um, uh, you know, there's no other way to put it than I am grateful for it because it does a lot for my, not only peace of mind, but for my mental health, because uh, I'm sure as you know, especially with everything that happened the last two years, not just with being isolated and locked down, but with mm -hmm. all the, from the white nationalists, like appearing yeah. to the police killings of black men, it, it's been mm -hmm. a lot. And so the community, you know, like, the the only way I could put it is like the right wing in martial arts, they feel better because they have self-help, right? They love mm -hmm. self-help. They don't oh, necessarily- Jordan Peterson is there to prove that. Yeah, so they don't necessarily like <laughs> therapy, but they like self-help. Yeah. What do we have on the left? I mean, of course mm -hmm. we're open to therapy, but also for us yeah. to feel better, instead of bootstrap stories, we have each other, we have solidarity. That's our- version of self-help. That's our version of feeling better. So uh, the solidarity has really helped me during this time. So if without this community, you know, it would have been so much tougher the, the past two years. So I'm not only surprised, but I am very grateful to have this group and uh, it still seems to be growing. So are you now um, able to sort of do this full time, just the podcast and your writing? Oh, I mean, I guess by default, right? Not because, <laughs> not, not because it's uh, making so much money, but because yeah. like, you know, it, my day job was as a personal trainer. And so mm -hmm. when all the gyms closed down and, uh, and also because I, I wasn't one of those trainers who was being uh, a COVID denier or being careless, I just didn't want to take that risk. And on top of, mm -hmm. I couldn't use the gym that I was using anyway. So yeah. Basically, it all got shut down. And so it forced me to do this full time. And so now that things are opening back up here where I live, mm -hmm. now I have to figure out like how to juggle this more. I wanted to touch in with you on something that uh, recently happened and we've all been paying attention to it. Uh, I think it really blew up this weekend. It was Rose uh, Namayunas's uh, comments. Rose Namayunas, obviously the former UFC champion, uh, who is set to fight Wiley Zhang, the current champion, and she made uh, some remarks on uh, to a Lithuanian outlet, and they were. You can look it up online. They're on my Twitter. They're everywhere. But basically, she was talking about how she was extra motivated for. The fight with uh, Wiley because she was, um, you know, she was Lithuanian, uh, so her family had a history with communism, and therefore what uh, Wiley represented, being a Chinese fighter, uh, made her more motivated to to beat her. It was it was a whole thing. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's put it like that. And uh, we both, you know, talked about this 
a little bit online. I think personally, from what I saw, I was pleasantly surprised at how much people, at the amount of people who recognized how terrible that was, the whole thing, uh, how dangerous it was, because that's, you're basically stoking anti-Asian sentiment at a moment in time when um, this is a particularly uh, treacherous uh, territory, a particularly dangerous thing to do. Uh, But at the same time, I think, I don't know if you were met with that. I sure was uh, a lot of, what's wrong with what she said? Isn't China bad? Do you like dictatorship and death? What's wrong with you? The classic. The yeah. people who never cared about any of this, but get, uh, as Dan Tom put it, selectively woke in this particular stance. And I know you have some thoughts on the matter. I kind of wanted to ask you, just first of all, I guess, how how dangerous do you think we're we're Namayunas' statements. Like, is her statements going to go cause people to do hate crimes? I I doubt it. But what Mm -hmm. it does is it creates an environment where it normalizes Mm -hmm. those ideas. And then once that's normalized, then it becomes easy for people to level things up. It's like, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like conspiracy theories where there's some seemingly benign ones, right? Mm -hmm. But they create an environment for more harmful ones. And then the harmful ones actually cause people to get harmed or killed because Mm -hmm. what are you normalizing ultimately? Even with like uh, certain conspiracy theories, there's always an element of dehumanizing some group, dehumanizing this other, right? And so once you dehumanize them, they're no longer seen as human, then it's not that far from, then why do I care if they get hurt, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack with that because mm-hmm. I get I get it at surface value. Uh, you just look at what she said and you look at it like a lawyer and you could try to say like, there's nothing racist about what she said or there's nothing yeah. really wrong about what she said or she's speaking her truth. But mm-hmm. I want to unpack that because we just had Trump, you know, for the last four years. Mm-hmm. And what was whole like MAGA about? Like, what was his whole shtick about? What is even mm-hmm. Jordan Peterson's whole thing about? It's about this like, mythical grand narrative, right? He always mythologizes the past and he always mythologizes his journey. Jordan Peterson does the same thing with Western civilization. And so Rose Namajunas in the same way is making her fight more than that. She's making this this like mythical good versus evil battle. Mm-hmm. And then secondly is this bait and switch where a lot of people are so like, this goes back to like growing up in a, in a reactionary culture, right? And we have to unlearn a lot of things. It's so normal to dehumanize people mm-hmm. who are non-white that people don't even notice that it happens. So it's just like yeah. water. It's like, no, that's just neutral. Like what's what's wrong with what she said? It's this like mm-hmm. subtle, uh, what is it? Not, not just bait and switch, but like- Gaslighting? Uh, uh, gaslighting, but I was gonna say sleight of hand. Yeah. Where she is no longer talking about the person. She replaced mm-hmm. the person with uh, a threat, an existential yeah. threat to Western civilization. And people didn't even notice that. She's not even mm-hmm. talking about Zhang Wai Li, but at the same time she started, we're ta- they asked her a question about Zhang Wai Li and she started talking about this existential threat. And nobody notices that she did that without skipping a beat because they're so used to doing that themselves to turn mm-hmm. a person of color into something else, to dehumanize them and turn them into this like, 
this threat, this idea, this ideology, this other mm -hmm. that is threatening all of us, threatening our freedom. She even said she's fighting for her freedom, right? She's fighting yeah. for freedom. Um, and there's another thing a lot of media people miss, Christ consciousness, which has nothing to do with Christianity. It is like this whole mm -hmm. new age conspiracy thing too, it, mm -hmm. it, about like basically means that she's in God mode. Like she's attained this like nirvana mm -hmm. consciousness. So there's like, like a lot of red flags and, and I've always had red flags with her. I've, I've always thought that she was a problematic person, but the thing mm -hmm. is like problematic people still can promote mental health stuff. Problematic people yeah, can still be nice, thing, right? they, but they still got problems. Right. Mm -hmm. But so to unpack that whole thing is like, we, we, we can't just look at her. We have to look at ourselves. Why is it so normal for us to just accept that somebody talks about an Asian woman as an idea and talk about this like mindless, submissive Asian narrative. Like she can't even say, speak her own words. Like here in the U.S., mm -hmm. especially where I live on the West Coast, like they talk about it as if it, it, China is another planet. We have people here complain mm -hmm. about Chinese tourists, which is in itself problematic. But how can you say at the same time you're annoyed by Chinese tourists and then simultaneously complain that they can't even come here? Which is it then? They could come here or they can't come here, right? Yeah. Or, or, or people from mainland China who immigrate here or who work here. And then a lot, you meet them here. They're, they're not this other. So it, especially even on people on the West Coast who buy into this, like how can you say that when you have experience with these people that they are here with us, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's also about questioning ourselves that how much we've internalized as being normal, that it is mistaking or, or interchanging a person with something else is that normal. And people are like, no, you could criticize the government or the country. And that's not the same yeah. as criticizing the people. And the same but people- she didn't though. She didn't. But <laughs> at the same time, the people, same people who say that if I say something about America, they will personally get offended yeah. because they can't differentiate America from themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's one and the same for them. So it's yeah. all this ruse. It's all this like, Saying it has nothing to do with racism is just all a ruse to me. It, people know. They know. They just, they just like what she said. But, you know, you go back to even her nickname, which she says that's what, like, the kids in the na neighborhood called her, Thug, right? But this is her MMA name, not her nickname growing up, right? How does she get that name growing up uh, in an MMA gym, right? And you and I both know most MMA gyms are mostly white. And you got mm -hmm. this... White, she started as a girl, right? Like as a young person, right? Not even as a woman. She started very young. You have her coming in, grew up in a black neighborhood, and then they call her thug too, right? <laughs> like the 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 white person who has proximity to black neighbors and culture is the the thug, right? You can see mm -hmm. there's a problem even starting with her nickname. And then even like media people who interviewed her, heard her story. She's always like talking about, oh, I grew up tough. And it was always about this, like I was persecuted for being the only white girl. And mm -hmm. even the media people took that as like, oh, that's what a what a bootstrap, like uh, courageous, like uh, overcoming story. Right. But those mm -hmm. red flags were always there. And then she's like posted mm -hmm. Blue Lives Matter stuff like even. Paula Sprager, you, I think, on like Instagram. Yeah. I mean, she's a nice person. I get that. But even like when she was talking about the, the PTSD she got from the Connor incident. I think they were on like Rogan or something. And she talked about there was like a march that day. I, I, and I think it was like, uh, you know, prior to even this, it was another like Black Lives Matter uh, 
protests of some kind. And the way she was even talking about those protesters as this dangerous other, she's like, because she was talking about, I don't know if you saw the interview, you know, that she has this extra spider sense where she knows when she's in danger. And that she's talked mm. about like being at a nightclub and knew mm. there was some shit that was going to go down. And then, you know, Pat Berry's like, she was right. She was right. Right. And, mm. uh, but she was talking about that same thing there. Mm. Like she knew that they were up to no good. So these signs were always there. And that's the thing though, that we can, that I think we have a tough time doing as people in general it is separating, you know, we can absolutely relate to a person's personal struggles. And obviously, Namayunas has been through hers. And I was appalled at people sort of brushing off the her real emotions after what happened with Connor, because that's absolutely, you know, a personal thing. What triggers a person's anxiety and whatever, it's none of my business. They're the ones to judge. And I think, and just the personal relatability, I think when Rose did that speech after the uh, INJ Jack fight and just, you know, was re very open um, about her fragility. It's something that in the sport that I think it's getting better over the years. We're getting better at addressing mental health and these things. But I feel like that that really stood out as a moment of like just unique bravery in how vulnerable she was. But I think that you can absolutely understand and relate to those experiences in a personal level and understand all the problematic aspects uh, around that person at the same time. And I think a lot of people have a, a, a bit of a tough time understanding that, that you can sort of separate the personal from, you know, the, the larger picture there. Yeah, you can have somebody who has, you know, problematic or toxic views, but they could be earnest and honest about other things. Like people are, mm -hmm. text, people are textured in that way. They're not black and white. And I think people yeah. try to like spot, you know, the good things and, and to, erase the bad things. I would say people oftentimes do too much good faith, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you could definitely point out the bad things and make somebody look bad, but I think there's this want, especially with our heroes to do the opposite is blame ignorance for malice sometimes. And it's like, mm -hmm. you know, I get it. You could do something, some things out of just being uh, ignorant about some things, but then when there's a pattern, even if the pattern grows out of ignorance, there's a point where it's just like, it, it is what it is. It just does harm. So there's a lot of like good things about her. She's very nice. She seems very uh, willing to be vulnerable and open. But I think maybe, I don't know, maybe part of that being openness makes her open to a lot of not so good ideas as well, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing, who knows? Like we're not, uh, I, I don't know her personally. I can't really speak to that. I can speak to, what she was saying at that moment. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, we've seen it over and over, right? Uh, if the subject of race, so racism particularly is brought up in MMA, it's like there's this, and I, it's not just in MMA, in the world, but again, I speak of MMA because it's the focus of what we're talking about here today, but like just these instinctive reaction of denial. And we've seen it happen over and over uh, with fighters, even who themselves address these things. Tyron Woodley is an example that comes to mind. And I've talked about him in, in the past of a fighter who was like, hey, I think the fact that, you know, I'm black might have something to do with the way I'm perceived by the fan base. And everybody just lost it because it just seemed offensive to people to, it, you know, I guess it's easier to sort of be angry at the notion of racism being brought up than unpacking those things that, you know, th th then really unpacking our part and unpacking our internalized biases and, and really doing the work to make sure that, you know, things change. 
yeah. just much easier to react in that way. I would say in the MMA community, they don't even say racism. I would say mm -hmm. that's the minority of us who even say that word. They say race card. <laughs> the race mm -hmm. card has been brought up. Yeah. That's different from racism existing. You brought up a card that does for something that doesn't exist, right? And you think about the irony of like, this is martial arts, right? A lot of it is techniques and, and knowledge from the East, from Asia. Yet how many of these people, right? These fighters are said anything about stopping Asian hate, you know? Mm -hmm. So- yeah. There's a, there's a lot of like cruel contradiction to this. To close things off, because I've been already taking up so much of your time. This is going to be a very, uh, a broad question, uh, but I don't know. Let me, let me try to phrase it in a coherent way. I don't know if it might, it's going to come out the way I had it in my mind. But one thing I think that uh, a lot of people might not understand about people with, you know, uh, revolutionary for the lack of a better word sort of tendencies is that we're, we're hopeful people because it takes a lot of hope to envision a world in which I don't, this is so cheesy, but uh, to envision sort of a world in which things could be, could be different to even take your mind there. Uh, and my question for you is like looking at the way things are now and, you know, the work that is being done to change it. I don't know. Are you a hopeful person in the future? I, I don't know, especially going back to my trip. I don't know if hopeful is the right word because okay. I try not to have expectations for it. So I'm not like I'm cynical of it either. Sometimes maybe I make a cynical joke, but mm -hmm. uh, I just think of it more like an aim. Okay. Where this is where I'd like, yeah, I guess I'd, I'd want things to go. Um, I want to be part of that process, whether it'll get there or not. I don't know. I don't, uh, nobody knows, you know, but mm -hmm. my, my want to do this isn't caveated by that ever happening, regardless of whether it happens or not. This is what aligns with me, what uh, aligns, going back to Rose Nama Yunus, this is, this, mm -hmm. this is what aligns with my truth. And my truth mm -hmm. is, is aiming for that, to try to make things better, to try to move us into a more equitable society and, and, and I can't maybe control society, but if we're just talking about the MMA community into a more equitable MMA community. And on that um, note, I want to thank you so much, Sam, for doing this today. Um, is there anything you want to plug your Twitter handle, your projects, anything you want our listeners to go check out? Yeah. If you're on Twitter, you could find me at stuff from Sam is my handle. Um, you could find more about the podcast at southpawpod.com. Support us if you can. Financially support us if you can. Um, and the podcast of the podcast is available wherever you listen. So whether it's uh, Spotify, YouTube, or uh, Apple Podcasts, it's all there. So that's where you can find me. Awesome. Thank you again, Sam, for being here. Thank you at home for listening. Thank you, puppies and kittens, for being very cute. <laughs> This has been the best camp of my life. See you all next week.